0: Welcome to The Sacred Everything, a podcast that explores what our world would look like if we treated ourselves, our communities, and the natural environment as sacred. Join us while we interview cutting edge practitioners that are shifting society's story from one of individuality and exploitation to unity and interbeing. Our guests will guide us through new and ancient innovations in the arts of personal healing, rediscovering our reciprocity with nature. In developing sacred communities, here's to a more beautiful world. Welcome everybody. We're excited to have you here. Today we're speaking with the organization Facing Homelessness with Kevin Glacky coli and Karina Wallace. Kevin is the executive director of the Seattle-based nonprofit Facing Homelessness. He's worked with marginalized communities since the early 1980s. In that time, he's worked with Nativity House, a drop-in center for people experiencing homelessness, co-founded the Tacoma Catholic Worker Community, coordinated prison and jail ministry for the Archdiocese of Seattle, and directed the St. Leo Food Connection, a large emergency feeding program. He lives in Tacoma, Washington, with his wife of 30 years.
1: Karina Wallace is the community programs manager at Facing Homelessness, where she works with volunteers, community partners, individuals who donate supplies, and their unhoused clients. Growing up over the years, she experienced a series of traumas after living in an orphanage in Siberia, Russia, which caused her to experience homelessness in her later years while living in America. She feels drawn to be part of organizations making a difference in the community.
0: We are blessed to have you, Kevin and Karina, here today, and we would love to start out just by hearing about Facing Homelessness, what it is that your organization does, and, and let's start with what is your mission and vision?
2: Okay, so our, our mission, um, and we're just kind of rolling this back out, we're calling it a renewed mission, but it's to inspire deliberate relationship building and community engagement as a pathway to ending homelessness. So. I think one of the things that sets us apart as an organization working with folks experiencing homelessness is our target audience in many ways is the larger community uh, of Seattle, uh, of, of trying to invite them. Our, our tagline is, say hello, just say hello. And so we invite people to enter into relationship at whatever level they're comfortable with, with people experiencing homelessness, while we're also with... Karina and, and the, uh, the Window of Kindness and the Block Project doing direct services, but it's really about trying to transform the larger community. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we, we envision a world where homelessness no longer exists. <laughs> um, on, on a personal note, I thought we would have gotten there by now um, since mm-hmm. I've been in this arena for a lot of years, but I still hold out the hope that we can get to a place where we recognize that everyone deserves and should have safe, stable
0: housing. Thanks, Kevin. We recognize that there is a heck of a lot of hard work that goes into it and it's going to take a lot more than funding, but rather a hard opening to get us there. So appreciate that. Um, Let's let's ask, you know, what are the sub projects involved in facing homelessness?
3: Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about our Window of Kindness program first. So our Window of Kindness program runs Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday directly out of our office. And um, we are basically handing out needed supplies to folks who are experiencing homelessness uh, in the university district area. And we're serving about 25 to 30 people a day in two hours. So that just shows right there how much of a need um, that there is for supplies and for food, and for general items, just like socks that are really hard to come by. Um, And you know, at the window, we are basically even though we are handing out supplies, um, our number one goal, our, our mission, is to create relationships between our volunteers and our clients and, um, and kind of be a support for them, a safe place, uh, because a lot of times people who are experiencing homelessness um, is, are, are um, having a hard time navigating a place where it is safe for them. So we'd mm-hmm. like to be that, that uh, place they can always feel welcomed and, and loved
0: appreciate that yeah i appreciate that description kevin tell us about the block project
3: so the block project grew
2: out of our mission of, of trying to create um, a community uh, you know work with the community to create solutions to homelessness uh, it was driven by the fact that our founder rex holbein is an architect hmm. and so the block project is very simply it's a way of uh, of turning uh, NIMBY, not in my backyard, into YIMBY, yes, in my backyard. So we partner (laughs) with homeowners across Seattle uh, who give us a ground lease for some space in their backyard, and we build a 130-square-foot self-contained, solar-powered, plumbed uh, and wired tiny home um, uh, that – you know, they talk about tiny homes now you know which are kind of more like sheds that it which is a step up from the tent but this is a home this is a home that I would I would move into hmm. and so we do that and uh, residents uh, who are identified by some of our community partners um, as someone who would do well in that kind of setting uh, and then they are able to live in that home for as long as they need to uh, our first resident has been in his home for four years and unless he needs to go somewhere for some um, physical care, I think that's where he will stay until the end. Others have stayed for a bit and moved on to other settings. Uh, we're in the beginning stages of the project. We, we uh, just did groundbreaking on our 13th home. Uh, and so we're hoping to have uh, 17 homes up and running uh, by the end of 2022. Wow. And then I would say related to that, so we, we have a care team of two social workers who work with the residents and the hosts to, uh, to provide support services, help them uh, navigate this new kind of relationship. You know, for folks exiting homelessness, there's a trauma that might have led them to the street, then there's a the trauma of while they were living unhoused, and then it's traumatic to move into your own space, and so we provide support for them. I think one of the things we thought going in is that it would be a, a great community moment. And, and what we're finding is it's got to move at the sp- at the pace of the of the resident. Uh, some of our residents need six or seven months just to be in their space and kind of mm. uh, un- unpack all that had been going on in their world. So it's really, uh, at the very least, they're good neighbors to each other. And, and how deep that relationship comes really gets driven by the need of the resident. Uh, and then a new program that came on board in the last year is in support of the uh, care team and it's a companionship program. And essentially, it's a way for people who don't live. in And one of the things I should say is that these homes are scattered throughout Seattle. So it's, it's, uh, it's um, all in all different neighborhoods, high income neighborhoods, low income neighborhoods. And so companions are folks who may not live in that neighborhood but want to walk alongside as a friend. With the person who's a resident and just to provide mm. that with a sense of community uh and support for a cup of coffee a conversation um and it's also again it's one of those things that transforms the member you know the companion as much as the resident
1: yeah i uh i went on your website earlier and i found this such this like unique little, little grain and it says we connect to those going through homelessness." through our passions, our interests, and our talents. And that gives way to meaningful relationships. And like w- with that focus on, on, on being with those that, that are experiencing homelessness, like you were talking about with that companionship program, you're really encouraging the folks to connect with the things that inspire them most. Uh, th- what are the uh, the stories behind that?
2: Karina and I are looking at each other here. Um, I think... And again, this is kind of, you know, the companionship program is new. I, what we found for folks who volunteer at the Window of Kindness or who volunteer with the block project in different ways, it's kind of the typical notion that you always get more back out of it than you put into it. And so it's, uh, it's a way of helping them see their community in a different way uh, to recognize that the person that they might just pass by on the street corner or at the exit ramp with a sign they, they begin to see them as a person, as someone that 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 um, has more in common with them than they thought, and I think that's the common experience for most of the folks who get touched by being volunteers in the program. So it breaks down that sense of other. Uh, what we're trying to figure out now, we're you know like most organizations, we're trying to look at a theory of change and how do we measure that? It's it's you know you can measure how many folks are living in a home, you can measure how many folks come to the window but it's a little bit harder to measure the impact that that experience has on the people taking part in the program. So we're exploring how to do that. Because again, I think our goal is that, you know, homelessness will end when we all face it together. And and we need, in order to do that, we need to step out of our comfort zones and be changed and and transformed.
1: Absolutely. How are, um, I know, I know that this is like, um, a non-religious organization. This is this is a secular uh, like uh, motion. But I know that some other organizations that that are involved with uh, helping those or serving those that are experiencing homelessness um, actually get a lot of a lot of their youth involved. Um, what is like the what is the youth culture with facing homelessness? Who, who are the people that are getting involved here?
3: Uh, the folks that we are serving at the window of kindness are roughly between the ages of. In their mid 20s to late 50s. We even have some folks that come that are like in their late 60s or 70s. And um, strangely, we're mainly serving like men at the window of kindness and not a lot of women. So, a lot of our supplies that we have, donations that we ask for are based, uh, are geared for men. And um, I think that the reason why that is is because there's a lot of more resources for women, especially in the university district area. Um, There is an organization called Teen Feed that is also um, close by and roots young adult shelter, um, which is geared for um, um, younger communities who are folks who are like who are experiencing homelessness, who were in foster care systems. Who were I, I just spoke to somebody yesterday at the window of kindness that uh, just turned eighteen is going to the UW college and was kicked out of his home because his parents caught him um, with his with his boyfriend and wow. weren't accepting of of um, his situation and his you know his um, him being gay. So there, we do talk with a lot of folks at the Window of Kindness that were in similar situations or has also dealt with a lot of trauma at a younger age and have been experiencing homelessness for, for many years. And, um, you know, me also going through the same situation, I I experienced homelessness when I was younger, but, you know, that's because of built up trauma um, that I went through when I was younger that I wasn't able to deal with at a young age. So I acted out in different ways. So, um, yeah. And so we do we do see youth homelessness, but at the same time, I think we mainly are seeing people who have been homeless for many, many years Um, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's from, uh, either trauma or just misplacement, um, in their, in their earlier years that, um, they weren't able to overcome and they're still stuck in this uh, situation. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. So the so community that you're serving is one that has been, um, houseless for, for a longer period of time. And you're saying that, uh, there are other organizations that are stepping up for the, the women and the youth. And then you, you, you. Gave a thread there of of your story of how of how you came uh, to be involved in this organization. do you mind expounding on your story and how did you come to facing homelessness
3: Yeah, I would love to so i was um, I was taken away from my mom when I was around the age of five because she suffered from um, you know she from alcoholism and she was also very, very young. Um, the conditions in Russia were very very poor. Um, she, Mm -hmm. the number one occupation for women in that Siberia, uh, Eastern Washington area was actually prostitution. Mm -hmm. And that's how she was able to take care of me. And at the same time, I'm just trying to put myself in her shoes being 18 years old and having a five-year-old daughter and, you know, being able to only support her in one way. Um, and so her, everything that she was going through, um, even though she was trying to stay strong for us, um, it really had a big impact on me, especially after I was taken away from her and um, brought to an orphanage that I lived in for about three and a half years. Luckily, Mm -hmm. I was able to get adopted by an American family um, and, you know, moved to the United States in 2002 and I was excited in every step of the way to come to the United States. I didn't know much about United States, but all I know is I was getting out of my awful situation and being in the orphanage and just, just mm. Russia in general. Um, and then after, um, you know, growing up in America, I had a lot to learn. I had to learn a new language. I um, just still felt out of, out of place in my own skin and I did uh, start using drugs in my early teen years. I wasn't coming home. Um, and I, you know, started skipping school. There was all this stuff that was still, I mean, not stuff, I would have to say just trauma that was attached to me um, that um, I wasn't able to kind of get through until um, until I, you know, at, at one point when I was 15 years old, I went uh, to treatment. And that had a really big impact on me um, in a positive way. And um, I still went through some, um, you know, trauma and situations with abusive relationships after that. Um, And eventually I, like, I, um, I started to navigate myself out of homelessness. I got out of that abusive relationship and I was able to build the life for myself that I have now. Mm -hmm. I started working for a nonprofit organization um, called 10,000 Villages. And then I was able to, I connected with Rex actually um, when I was still homeless, which is the founder of our our organization, Rex Holbein. And I was able to then um, kind of start taking the steps that I I needed to make a new life for myself. I got on a housing program, which is really hard to find in Seattle. Um, It's housing is just completely very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so just, I think, um, I was able to navigate myself out be- just because I wanted a new life for myself. I wanted something different and I was lucky to just be able to, um, get clean and also, um, you know, build the life for myself that I wanted to. And I didn't have to go through, you know, treatment or AA. Um, I just kind of, I guess, found myself. Um, yeah. Kind of hard to explain, but uh, just, yeah. But I, I think that everything that I went through at a younger age made me stronger and into who I am today. And I, I wouldn't take every, anything back, actually. So, um, yeah, when I heard that there was a position at Facing Homelessness, I, I wanted to take that opportunity. So even though I didn't go to college, I didn't have any experience um, to for mm-hmm. this position, I the, facing homelessness still gave me a chance. Um, they saw something in me, which I, you know, I am was so lucky. I feel like I'm so lucky to be a part of this organization. And a lot of the times I am seeing a lot of the folks at the window of kindness who were also, um, who I knew while I was experiencing homelessness and just to be able to like give back and still maintain those relationships in a healthy way feels so Mm -hmm. good to me every single day that I'm at the window. So, you know, that's kind of my passion. My, I guess my, um, my, uh, my history is what led me to, uh, facing homelessness.
1: That's so beautiful. That's that you connected with, and, and you came back to serve the very community you came from. I think, Wow. If that's a part of the sacred, everything, I don't know what is.
3: (laughs) And they also like that, um, folks that I work with at the window of kindness give me so much that, that I, it's, it's very hard to explain, but, um, I feel at home when I'm, you know, connecting, talking to, making conversation with the folks at the window. I wish that I could just hang out with them basically all day, you know, um, because, yeah, and it's not like a, it's not in a situation where I feel like I'm helping the other, you know, because I'm not there to change anybody's lives. I don't, I'm not there to prove that their such, my situation is better than theirs, or like make them feel less than I am. I just, I'm there to, um, to, I guess, in a way, be an example. um, And also, just to, build that relationship, the healthy relationship that I wish that I had with, uh, some of the folks that I knew before, um, I was able to navigate this life for myself.
1: Yeah.
0: No, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing. It's very tender and, and, grounding in so many ways you know in terms of hope but also just the message that you gave around the stigma maybe that one could have for unhoused people and how um, coming from a position of privilege now to some extent that that you did that you were able to develop kind of from within um, it's a good perspective for a lot of us to to think about, you know, this isn't about being better or worse or changing. It's just another modality of life. And if we can provide support and care and not stigmatize it necessarily, then that's a really good medicine for the healing of it. I don't I don't know if, if I'm mirroring back what you were saying accurately, but that, that's what I was hearing from you.
3: Oh, definitely, that's right on the spot.
2: So I'm, I'm always moved when Karina shares her story and, you know, when she says, you know, we took the, the organization took a chance on her. I mean, I think she's at the heart of what the organization is and, uh, is uberly talented and able to, to bring her full self to this work. So we're, we're blessed to have her. I'm blessed to know her. Um, I came to it. Um, I, I started volunteering at soup kitchens when I was in college in the late seventies. And, uh, Initially, I would spend all my time scrubbing the pots and pans. And and people who know me know that's not my normal forte. I don't like to clean. But I was scared of the people who were out there having soup. But after a couple of Fridays of being there, I'm like, I really don't like scrubbing pots and pans. I'll serve some soup. And then after a while, I realized I was hungry. So For the next few years that I was there, I I don't know that I ever worked uh, in the way that the volunteer (laughs) coordinator would have liked. But I would just come in and have soup and visit with folks. And so since then, it's, it's always been, I've worked in lots of different settings, working with people on the edges, but everything I've been involved in has been relation-based and that it, it starts with the human contact. Um, I worked in, in faith settings for a long time. And while, as you were talking about earlier, while Facing Homelessness is not a faith-based organization, it is rooted in kind of you know what a lot of the major religions will have, which is recognizing, the, in the other, recognizing yourself. Uh, and so I was uh, I was in, in between jobs, and I was looking for something. Um, I'm in my early 60s now, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier. I, I really thought that we would be further along solving all these issues by now. And I was just really drawn to, to the mission of facing homelessness uh, that we that we need to build bridges between these different segregated parts of our community, and so that people can be, begin to see. Uh, see themselves in the other, whatever the other is, and uh, and so this is just one way, and so Rex, you know, our, our organization started when Rex uh, was an architect and had people experiencing homelessness outside his office, and he started inviting them in and having conversations and getting to know them, and then he started, he's a, in addition to being an architect, he's a photojournalist at heart, and he started sharing their stories online, and it, and it, it resonated with people in the community, I think, who want to see homelessness like hunger and racism and sexism. They're huge issues. And so you just, I think many people will put their hands up and say, I can't fix it all, so I'm not going to do anything. And I think what Facing Homelessness does is says, here's what you can do. You can say hello, however that means for you. And so I was really drawn to that mission of taking people where they are and then kind of uh, helping them navigate what that does for them, both the folks who might live in a block home or the resident or the volunteer at the window of kindness or someone who's a donor. Um, that's great. Uh, what does that do for you and, and how can you then take the next step, whether it's with us or with somebody else? Because that's how I think we transform the world. We're not going to build enough shelters to get ourselves out of it. We have to We have to build enough community to get ourselves out of it.
1: I find that so refreshing to hear because, it, I mean, in, in the world of uh, NGOs, it's it's all or nothing. It's either we're going to solve homelessness or we're going to solve world hunger. We're going to do this or that. And, and neither actually ends up happening in the end. And so I find it so refreshing that, 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 that of your take on this, it's like, we don't know what the outcome is, but we're on the path and we, we invite everybody else to join us on the path, say hello Brighten up somebody's day, share a smile, coffee, hot chocolate. What are the impacts that you've seen of this program on the individuals that have on the individuals that have taken that have taken part in this?
3: Yeah. So uh, one thing that I've noticed is at the window of kindness um, is which is all run by volunteers. I would like to add, all of our programs are volunteer powered. Um, we I see transformation at the window. At a lot of the time, um, a lot of uh, most of our volunteers, sorry, I shouldn't say most of our volunteers, some of our volunteers are afraid to take that first step to, to say hello, um, to, um, you know, start a conversation with somebody who is living unhoused. And after being at the window and connecting with folks and, um, you know, kind of and getting to know them, building that relationship, I see this transformation that changes in people's eyes and their attitude and their their thoughts on um, homelessness in general. So I, you know it's it could be frightening to interact with somebody who is in a mental crisis situation or um, you know j- just like I feel like it's it's very um, common for a lot of folks to just be afraid to start a conversation with anybody that they don't know. But then, when you attach homelessness and um, the stigma that's around it, and and then also potentially some mental health crisis stuff going on there, um, people are of course going to be even more afraid to make that connection. So, the transformation that I see is like that stigma breaks down within the, our our volunteers, the people that you know that I interact with at the window, and. What takes over is love and compassion and empathy, and I think that's just it shows how when you get closer to someone, the barriers come down. That's what I see at the window is just like that. The transformation is needed in order to see the humanity in each other, and um, and it happens when when we start building those relationships with folks who are living um, unhoused, and we get to see that it's they're people just like us you know they have fears they have um you know anxiety they have um dreams and um you know they have passion for um things just like we all do so I guess that's what i have to say about that
1: right. mm-hmm. it's it's a blessing you guys are getting involved in that work <laughs> every time you say something I'm, I'm moved by those words I mean like like just listening to each other mirroring each other it's it's, it's such a medicine and especially in an, in an individualistic society that that we are involved in you know breaking down those barriers exactly like you said with it with the communication whose idea was the window of kindness project
3: so it's so interesting that you ask that because um besides our photojournalism page uh that rex holbein started which it came so naturally because he, you know, just being a photographer and a storyteller, he um, would work in Fremont, uh, which is a location in Seattle, Washington, but right off the canal as an architect. And he just started meeting folks around that area that were experiencing homelessness and getting to know them, and building those relationships. And it came so naturally that he, you know, he started wanting to do more of that um, and actually quit his practice as working as an architect and decided to start facing homelessness. So, um, and when he, after he started facing homelessness, um, we, you know, of course he got an office uh, located in the university district, Seattle, Washington. Um, And at first the window started from just somebody knocking on the window and being like, on the office windows and asking for a pair of socks, and or um, maybe some snacks or something like that, or just to actually say hello to the staff because they felt so loved and um, and cared for at the window. So, so naturally, the window of, ki- of kindness actually became a program all in its own and it's expanded a lot to what it is today um but like now run by volunteers but at the at at the beginning it was just it just started from folks coming to the window just so they could you know say hello to someone and um um and you know feel the love that they needed to get by
2: you know i I, I, again i always love listening to karina share this share these stories um i've only been with the organization since august so it's Six months. I think it's six months today, actually. And uh, but I, one of the things I did in an earlier life is I helped start a Catholic Worker community, which are loosely knit communities of people opening homes of hospitality and soup kitchens and other things. But one of the founders was Dorothy Day, and in, and she started it in the thirties. And she said we were just sitting there talking, and somebody needed uh, something to eat, so we started a soup kitchen, and somebody needed a place to stay, so. Kind of our, our response has been the same. And I think that's what's, you know, I, I've, I've run nonprofits for a long time. And so I, I, I can get into that little world of, well, if we do more programs, we can bring in more money and we can do more stuff. And I'm really uh, struck by this organization's commitment to saying it has to be on a personal level. Uh, we're not going to, again, I, I think I said this earlier, we're not going to shelter, build enough shelters to get out of this. We have to build community. And that takes time and and but i also think that community or lack of community is what is what is is what's led to this kind of separation we have in our in our culture the othering of others and uh so i'm really struck by the fact that that as an organization facing homelessness is really committed to taking the slow meaningful steps that can have some long-lasting change
1: I, I love that the, the the othering of others. I mean, uh, on the site I saw actually directly in your bio, Kevin, uh, something that said your work in uh, cross class integration. W- what has been the the impact of that? Uh, could you tell me some more about that 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 integration? Oh, I think that was on somebody
2: else's. I like that phrase. I don't know if I've ever used it, but uh, I think for me, it's it's just that sense of we get divided by you know. By gender, by sexual orientation, by national origin, by education levels, and I'm a well-educated North American, gendered heterosexual male. I mean, I hit the, uh, the the jackpot when it comes to privilege.
3: <laughs> but I, uh,
2: years and years ago, I was uh, when I was just a kid working at Nativity House in the early in the mid '80s. Uh, and again, I was a kid from the suburbs, I'd gotten a good education. I came out with this volunteer program to spend a year working with folks on the streets. And part of me was really nervous. And there's this one guy, Kevin Putney, who's a guest, and he uh, he could find your button and then he would ride it. And he, <laughs> so he knew my button was sort of like feeling guilty about being this white dude doing this stuff. And one day he was just he was just jumping all over the button, and I just had enough. And I said, "You know, dude, you're right. I I don't know a damn thing about being black and from the ghetto, and you don't know a damn thing about being white from the suburbs. So why don't you shut up and let's talk?" And (laughs) and then I prepared to get hit, and he just laughed. And from that moment on, our relationship changed. It was sort of like I had to acknowledge who I was in that, and I had to acknowledge that I also had some experiences that he didn't have, and let's find a way to, to, to meet in the middle there. And I think that's really at the heart of what happens in facing homelessness is a lot of folks, I think sometimes there's fear to enter into kind of direct contact with folks who are different because you're, you might be afraid of them or, but I think sometimes you're afraid of your own complicity in what, in, in, in perpetrating the system, perpetuating the system that is creating those problems. And you don't want to be, you don't want to have to face that because then you're going to have to change. Uh, there's an old mm. old song from Phil Oaks, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. And it said, you know, I can, I'll can, send all the money you asked for, but don't ask me to come on along. Uh, <laughs> and I think at the heart of what we do is we ask people to come along and, and bring their talent and their treasure and their time. But mostly just bring themselves along and enter into kind of not knowing where it's going to lead to. And I think that's true for the hosts who say, yes, I'm happy to have this house built in my backyard for the folks who come to the window of kindness, um, for folks who are taking part in, in, you know, different, you know, helping to build a home or, or work in our shop to fabricate the home. Just come along and then, and then don't know where it's going to lead you and then let yourself be led to the next step uh, so that we get transformed as well.
0: I'm hearing incredible nuggets here, and I I just had the thought maybe the shadow organization of facing homelessness is facing helplessness, you know, for people who,
3: <laughs>
0: you know, for the people that who be, are, that are that like that. Yeah, you know, Homeless. it's like, I, I'm living this normal life, but climate change and homelessness and structural racism, and what the heck can I do? You know, yeah, like yeah. there is a ton of helplessness out there. There is. Yeah gobs and gobs of articles about climate grief, right? Yeah. Just people being completely stricken by seemingly unapproachable, gargantuan problems. And you're providing an outlet like this this program is not simply for folks that are facing homelessness. This is, this is actually, in fact, an empowerment program for folks who are housed and they live with any version of privilege that is outside of houselessness. And, uh, they can, they can start to see a direct impact as opposed to, you know, sending $10 a month to their favorite charity and not feeling it. And I, you know, it's, your story is very similar to mine just in terms of I felt like I wasn't doing enough and I went to a soup kitchen and I said I gotta be able to do something with my hands and do service and um, as soon as the pandemic hit that wasn't available to me and I gotta tell you I have had an incredibly strong itch to be doing service in community with people hands-on digital stuff just doesn't cut it for me anymore you know, and you feel impact, you see impact, you put your hands down. And I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just smitten with the idea that this is a, this is a, a a project that faces two ways and, and that, and that um, even in this interview, I'm discovering, you know, your clients are not just those that are unhoused. Well, maybe, maybe that's a perfect segue to the next question, which is, what, what is community in this? You know, you're talking, you know, we're, we're kind of hitting on this being bifacing. Maybe we start with the block project and say, okay, how does the individual that is being housed receive this gift? What is, what is their, what is a day in their life look like? But then also, what is the impact on a community? Because you're saying, not in my backyard. There's probably a lot of people out there that are saying, I don't want somebody who was formerly houseless in my backyard. Like, wh- what happens? What is the transformation? And, and, and who are these people in this community that are so accepting of something that could be, to some extent, taboo in mainstream society?
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's an amazing thing. And, um, you know, I think it, in the early days when they were kind con- we were contemplating the block project. There was a point in time count that said there were 14,000 some odd people experiencing homelessness in Seattle and there are 14,000 city blocks. So we could build one home, a block. It would be an answer. That's not a realistic, (laughs) there's not a plan for making that to happen. But I think what it's realized, a couple of things. One, folks who are experiencing homelessness like, all of us are looking for a sense, a place of belonging. I've always been struck by how folks who are living unhoused or close to it identify people in their life as family. This is my mom, this is my grandmother, this is my brother. Is my, then there's no blood relationship, but hmm. there's this need for that sense of I have somebody in my life who's going to, and that's not particular to folks experiencing homelessness. Just some of us who are housed have a little more clear sense of that happening. So I do like, I'm going to steal the facing hopelessness because I think that's where we come together. And again, I'll, I'll go back to Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker. She says, we've all known the long loneliness that, uh, and the only answer is love and love comes from community. Hmm. So community happens in different ways. Community happens at the window and, and Karina can speak to that. Community happens in the block project, again, at the speed of the resident. And so a resident is, moves into a home and, 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 had one person share that for the first six or seven months he just basically never left because he'd always been with people when he was on the street you know like whether you're in line at the soup kitchen or you're staying in a shelter even if you're camp there's always people and he just needed a space to to be and so I, I think folks um, who are coming into the block project we're, we're learning now that again I think I said this earlier that the, the, the sense of community is not going to be that since we're all under one roof and we're living together and, but it's that I have some, I have some space here and somebody else can use it. And, and, mm-hmm. and the home we build for them, here's the other difference for me is I, it's a home I would move into. It's, uh, right. it's only 130 square feet, but it's got a shower. It's got a bathroom. It's got solar power. It's well insulated. It's beautiful. It's landscaped around it. And it's just, it's a place of healing for the resident and for the host. And uh, so the most powerful example of that for me in the last six months is we had a resident pass away this fall and I remember when I got the call my first thought was I'm so glad he passed away at home he didn't pass away on his mm. uh, but then he, he had two sisters come and visit uh, from back in the midwest and they came uh, and since he lived in a block home he had a place where his stuff was they could come and and get some of the things that they had that they would could remember their brother by. But the other thing is we were walking into the backyard where the home is, and they were behind me. But I could both hear and feel the relief or the the healing of when they walked in and saw the space their brother had lived. Mm. It, was, it was a home. And at the, in that case, they, he had a good relationship with the residents. The residents were there and spoke about their brother as someone they had come to know and care for. And that was a healing thing for them and and they were able to get some of uh, some of the family things that he had with them so it's a it's a ripple effect
3: yeah, thank you so much for um, sharing all that Kevin and um i I want to share some examples of how I see community and healing within our community at the window of kindness so I think the first example that I want to share is um so we have these monthly facing homelessness orientations um, over Zoom and we, um, we you know, share information about our organization and uh, give examples of different ways folks can get involved. People don't have to get involved just by donating money. Um, you don't have to volunteer at the Window of Kindness or the Block Project. Like we... Ask community to get involved in whatever way that fits them. So if you're an artist, um, if you're a landscaper, if you like to, like, um, pop plants, like, we could use all of that support. And one of the ways I, I think I, I just, I, I loved this whole situation. Um, this this woman named Miranda, she reached out to me after one of our orientations. And she was like, I, I was really uh, moved by your, what you said, like, um when when we shared that um you know you can get to contribute with your passions and skills so her passion and her skill is to is she's an artist she creates portraits so she was like I would like to donate one of a portrait um to mm-hmm. somebody at the window or anyone that is experiencing homelessness um that you think would you know could uh would appreciate it and so immediately we started uh, you know brainstorming and i was like you know maybe it'd be great to ask uh, to see if somebody from the block project would appreciate a portrait so it happened to be that one of our newest residents at the time alexio hmm. um was very interested in this idea and she created this beautiful portrait that actually sells for five to eight hundred dollars and put in her time and um and you know put in her passion and skills because she wanted to contribute what she could um, to someone else, which ended up being an amazing, amazing um, situation. She like came, she met with Alexiel at the office and they connected. She asked, like, she wanted to make sure that she um, was Mm -hmm. respectful, sharing information or, you know, showing certain things in the portrait. And was just like, I, I see a lot of community building within that because it's, um, you know, somebody taking their own time and something that they're passionate about and sharing it with someone else that, you know, maybe doesn't don't have the funds or the um, the funds to to do that, to do something like that for themselves. So I see community building there. And um, another thing I want to share is. We have two volunteers, uh, Barbara and Jordan, that used to volunteer at the Window of Kindness every single Thursday before the pandemic. They would come in every single week. And um, after the pandemic, they you know, decided to um, to stop volunteering specifically at the Window of Kindness. But they're passionate about um, their like, love, uh, planting new flowers and um Basically, they are they come in once mm. a week now. They clean up our patio. They um, plant these beautiful flowers that make our the window of kindness patio feel like a like an urban oasis. Our clients at the window are um, oh, have mentioned many times how they feel like like it's a beautiful place to walk into. Um, you know, having the flowers there, it's very welcoming and it feels. It's like even a safer place um, just from having that addition. <laughs>
0: right. And, uh, you
3: know, I see a lot of community building there because we, like, I don't know how to pot plants. I mean, yeah. I could, right? I could. But like, I'm not a professional. And, you know, I. so, yeah, that's what I really appreciate about, um, you know, having that, that phrase, like, con- contribute your own passions and skills. Um, because it, it opens up a really wide, uh, door of different community building, um, different opportunities and, um, just is, you know, opens up flexibility with, uh, for people who are like, I don't maybe want to volunteer for the block project, or I don't, I I don't want to be at the window of kindness at this time, but I can do this for you. um, because it's something that, that I'm passionate about. So I also see community building between our volunteers and our clients that we serve at the Window of Kindness. It makes me so happy to see um, our clients, you know, come to the window and are like, you know, where's Amanda today? Where's, where's like, where's Jennifer? I want to say hi. Um, to be excited about seeing our volunteers and staff members, you know, I, that tells me when people are excited to see us, it tells me that we are providing that safe place um, that 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 is needed for them and for us. And also um, yeah, and it is just very beautiful to watch. Um, And I it also I see community building Mm. when I, you know, hear when volunteers text me after hours and are like, hey, I didn't see Joe today. Is he okay? And I heard that you know someone is in the hospital. Like, how are they doing? Like, I feel the compassion. I I feel the the um, the care, and I I see a lot of love at the window. So that is something that I witness every single day. And Amen. like, if that's not community building, then I don't know what what is. You know. <laughs>
0: Mm. Yeah. So something that's just kind of coming in to reflect back is, is that I'm, I'm hearing that we don't all need to go to a soup kitchen, that we don't all need to just, you know, I guess if, if, if you look at things this way, give a handout to people, you know, it's sort of like, we can see this as gift giving. We can see this as sharing ourselves and parts of ourselves in any way possible. Um, you know, whether that's doing a portrait or lending some of our time. If we love to do carpentry anyway in the development of a tiny home for somebody who, who's in need of it, uh, there's so many ways. And not that everybody needs to get inspired and start a nonprofit organization about it, but there's probably, for, for every person looking to to contribute, there's probably a place in their local area where where their gifts and talents would be valued and, and, and could make a difference. Or I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm also pulling out, just say hello, you know, right. just say hello and give somebody a human moment, right? No, don't, don't, don't recoil with the stigma that they want something from me except for humanity. And if maybe we can start from that point where we, we, we are beginning to untrain the recoiling and we're beginning to lean into the humanity, then it's like, oh, wait, next time I see that guy that I see every day or every week, I might be able to offer him this gift or talent that I have in my life. You know, and, and I don't know, I'd, I'm riffing on on kind of what your stories of community, maybe if you guys want to just, I don't know, Am I, am I close? Of my close? Or is that, to me, that sounds like your bigger mission, right? Give people that opportunity to start to change their mindset and their heart set.
2: Okay. Um, I think you're spot on there. I think that, um, and, and it's recognizing that there's a lot of places, that, you know, you talked a little bit about climate uh, earlier and there's systemic racism. I mean, they're all intertwined and they're all related to each other. Um, and you we can just get so overwhelmed that we don't do anything and so it's it's finding the thing you can do and doing it and then seeing what the next thing is you know my wife's been a special ed teacher in Tacoma for 32 years she works with kids three to five who are diagnosed with autism I could not do her job and I'm not supposed to do her job and so and she she would rather pull her hair out than to do the things I've done but uh, we find a way to support each other in doing the thing that makes sense for us and recognize that we're just going to, uh, we, we got here over time. We're going to get out of this over time. And it's going to just take us not numbing ourselves to the human reality of what's out there. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think too, it's like, I remember having a conversation with my father years ago and he's like, well, that seems, it doesn't seem very altruistic what you're doing you know, cause I was talking about what I got. I said, it's not, I mean, none of us will, unless you're a masochist, nobody does anything that's painful all the time. (laughs) And so I, I mean, for me working, doing what he did, which is working in the corporate world, that would have been masochistic. I I mean, I Mm. I couldn't do that, Uh, (laughs) but he was getting something. So that's where he was. not so I, I think that's part of it is finding your sweet spot and just, and recognizing what you can do and then recognizing what other people can bring to it. I mean, if you look at our staff, it's, the guy who's running the Block Project used to work in a, in a construction firm, and it mm-hmm. you know, just gave him a place to live out his passion in a different way. And Karina mm-hmm. already shared her story, and I mean, all of us have come from places where um, we were just trying to figure out how did we fit in and how do we belong, and that's all everybody else wants. So, how can we create a world where it's easier for people to be good? Uh, that's I keep coming back to that as a, as a motto. So, and it's not my line; I stole it from Peter Warren. So. <laughs>
1: Uh, I like how you put a pin in, in that and uh, in altruism and, and that it's not essentially all about helping. It's not about fixing. It's not about having divine intentions. It's about holding space for an emotional healing. Being there, that's all it took. And that's all that, that you guys are willing to promise to the people in this commitment, in, in, in this negotiation I mean, I think all communication is essentially a negotiation and that if you're willing to give another person that attention, that is such a surefire sign of confidence. It's like, hey, you're human too. Are there organizations doing similar things in this concurrent circles of work here?
3: Yeah. So I think um, in terms of the block project, um, I, there actually are not a lot of similar projects Um, And I'll let you speak more on that, Kevin, because I know you're more involved with the logistics of that. But, um, yeah, so I I think that there's a lot of things like the block project, like in terms of the house in itself. Um, There are, I'm sure you've heard of them, homes called tiny homes, which they're basically shed-like homes that are placed in different areas. And there's usually about, I don't know, 30 homes, maybe not even – maybe that's not the right number, but they are so much different than the block project homes and the, the mission of the, of the homes in general, just because, you know, you, you do have like a shared kitchen, um, a shared bathroom, things like that. And it's more of like a shed like, um, place, but like the block project, like Kevin has said, has, has the shower in the home itself has like their own private space. So they don't have to share, um, Amnities and um, with, with other with other folks. So, and just the mission of the Block Project about like connecting community um, and you know connecting the residents into the community and the mission of the Block Project, I guess in itself is just is a very unique situation. Um, Kevin, do you want to add more to that?
2: Yeah, I'd say there's. One of the things I think that really stands out to me about the block project is that it's um, it's single site, so it's not um, it's not putting a whole bunch of people who have experienced trauma into one setting and and mm-hmm. and, uh, and just kind of segregating them from the other parts of the community. So you have all you know, nobody wants a shelter in their neighborhood kind of thing. And this is this is a one the model now it's it's one person homes. I mean, we're, look, we're looking at. Other ways of doing configuring with, with the block homes so that they can be a little bit larger in different settings. So, I don't think that's happening uh, anywhere else. Um, what we've been excited about, we've been approached by a couple of organizations, uh, both of which work with native communities uh, and are native led to do, uh, who, who want to. So, our homes are fabricated in a shop we have in Seattle, and we could turn out one home a week, and then it, you can put it together on site. In four days, you have to do all the all the preliminary work of the foundation wow. and everything else. There's no way we can do that and manage that. But we have a couple of folks who come to us and say, "Hey, could we buy this as a kit, and we'll set it up mm-hmm. on our space?" And so we're exploring that model. Maybe um, you know, because we recognize that ours is it's pretty time intensive, and we have you know, uh, the average social worker will have forty to fifty people on their caseload, and we have two case we have two social workers working with thirteen people right now. Hmm. and residents, and that's that's a lot to do, and so we, we're we not going to outgrow or burn out our staff, but we might be able to come alongside other organizations that, you know, they have the land or they have, and or they have the, the case management stuff that you need, the supportive services, and then we can, on the side, say, hey, here's the housing model that works. The other thing I would say is that, you know, in order to do a typical low-income housing unit in the city of Seattle, it's about $300,000. Hmm. Ours come in at about 75,000, which is a lot of money when you compare it to a tiny home, which is, you know, three to $5,000, but it's permanent housing, it's quality housing, it's, uh, so yeah, so we're trying to figure out ways, what can we bring to the table in these kinds of relationships? You know, we don't necessarily need to build 14,000 homes, one on every block, but maybe other people want to build some and we have this, we can turn out those, those, uh, those, uh, houses and then other folks can do the management of it. So we're not, we're not really, uh. I think one of the other things I like about it is we're not very propri- uh, proprietary. Uh, uh, maybe that's not the right word about our stuff. You know, we, we we were happy to share what we do and people can take it and run with it.
0: Hmm.
1: What are the trends in people who are uh, moved from that NIMBY mindset to that YIMBY mindset? Who are those folks?
2: Well, you know, and it's a small sample set right now. We, we have 12 homes and we just started our groundbreaking on uh, our 13th. They're in all sorts of neighborhoods across Seattle. So it it crosses the socioeconomic uh, uh, strata. Um, They are folks who want, who recognize that they have, what they can do is they can, they have this space that, that can work. And, you know, it's really daunting. I think sometimes to consider, you know, if you have somebody move in your house with you, but so this is, this gives enough, it's community with distance. And so people have their own space. Uh, And what I've, heard in listening to the different block hosts talk about it is it's a transformative thing for them as well and it's not necessarily just about the relationship they have with their resident because those have different levels of depth depending on on the folks but it's just recognizing I could do something I could do something Mm -hmm. about this problem and I can do it in a way you know so we have conversations with the resident i mean with the host and with the host's neighbors about this project happening so, so mm. nobody feels like it's sprung on them but again it's one home on one block and so it, it's not as daunting a thing for someone to take in and i i don't know how to measure that yet then again i mentioned earlier we're, we're looking at doing theory of change how can we figure out what the impact of that is because one of the problems with social service funding is that you usually have to show all these outcomes and outputs and we serve this many meals and we had this many people come and, you know, and I've, I've lived in that world and you're basically chasing money to do program. You're doing programs to chase money. And so I think we've been mm. very intentional about this is what we can do. We're going to do this. And then what's the next step after that? And then trying to measure what the impact of it's been both for the, 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 the Client, as it were, a guest, and and for the larger community. Uh, what a great a question! Experiment. That I saw in, in the stuff that was going out. Um, what would uh, what would this look like if it? You know, I think this is a way that you can solve the problem. I think it's manageable. I know. I, I, I joke around. I have a bunch of friends who are social service workers and teachers and things, and we have one friend with six acres out in Gig Harbor, just outside of Tacoma, and, and we have been talking semi-seriously about, you know, we just need to build some tiny homes out on your property. And that's where we're all going to retire. Because then we'll have community, <laughs> we'll have our space. It'll all, you know, um, and so I think it's a, it's a way of helping the community. You know, we don't need these huge houses that we have, uh, you know. So how do we how do we share that space? You know, how do we share the, the earth in a better way with each other? So
1: now I'm rambling, yeah. we'll stop. Well... Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Karina, for coming on today. And we appreciate you guys for sharing your stories, the stories of your organization and the stories of the individuals involved. And we're so excited to see what's going to come from this fruitful experiment of yours and uh, keep it coming. All right. Thanks so much, Dennis and Travis. Really
2: appreciate it. Karina, It's always I always love listening to you share your story and share about what we do. So thank you
3: yeah no thank you so much for inviting us to be here and I gotta say you two um and you two are doing amazing work I've you know um briefly listened to some some of your podcasts and I'm going to listen to all of them and to yeah and I'm gonna listen to the whole thing because I think what you guys two are doing is just amazing and um, the whole storyline of your podcast it's really it's really touching so I appreciate you inviting us to be here
0: Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. The Sacred Everything is brought to you with the generous volunteer assistance of our team. Dennis Pavluck is our technical wizard, philosophical gymnast, co-host, and editor of the podcast. Danya Trejo is the manager of our marketing, community, and design efforts, and also our head witch. I'm Travis Sheehan, the regenerative creator, systems magician, co-host, and belly laugh keeper of The Sacred Everything.